Hello, everyone. Welcome to Scientist the Human podcast. It's my pleasure to share that this episode is part of a series done in collaboration with the QBI, or Quantitative Biosciences Institute, and UCSF, University of California in San Francisco. QBI fosters collaborations across the biomedical and the physical sciences, seeking quantitative methods to address pressing problems in biology and biomedicine. I'm excited by the opportunity to connect with awesome scientists here at the QBI and share these conversations with you. Let's get into it. Back with regularly scheduled programming, Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh. Today, I'm here with Dr. Clement Verba, or Clem, who is an assistant professor at the QBI, or Quantitative Biosciences Institute, and UCSF. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad yeah. to be here. I'm uh, really excited to, to chat with you. Um, having the opportunity to interview scientists at QBI is great, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about your research, and uh, let's just jump right into it. Uh, so... You have an interesting background. You've done, uh, compared to what you uh, started your your research on, you kind of went in different directions, uh, kind of focusing a lot on cancer research mm-hmm. previously, and then also now into virology mm-hmm. with uh, SARS-CoV-19, uh, COVID right? Mm-hmm. And so let's just kind of talk about one of the main tools that you use, mm-hmm. uh, which is cryo-EM. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what cryo-EM is? Sure. Um, before we jump into that, I would like to say that I'm also, I'm actually an assistant professor at the Cell and Molecular Pharmacology Department. Oh, wow. Yourself, in addition to QBI. Apologies, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. Of, Lots yeah. of affiliations. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's no how problem. we like it here at UCSF. Everyone yeah. is part of everything. Okay, great, <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, yeah, so cryo-EM uh, is, um, is a... Relative, well, it's it's an incredibly powerful technique. Mm-hmm. I was going to say it's relatively new. That's not true. It's actually really old, okay. from the 1930s. But there was a number of technological, you know, advancements in the past decade, which allowed it to really become incredibly useful for us biologists. Um, and I guess for those who are not familiar with you know this uh, overall field of what's called structural biology. Um, the idea here is to use different biophysical methods to understand how proteins look in three dimensions, in atomic details. And, right. and you know, uh, to a very simple sort of uh, parallel to, to, to help people with an intuition, it's, you know, it's like if you look at a tool set and you have Phillips screwdriver and a flat blade, uh, the, their shape uh, sort of enacts their function. And so the exact same thing happens in at the molecular atomic details with our proteins. And so, again, you know, for from my standpoint, everything that is interesting in biology is, happens by work of done by proteins. And so everything that, you know, we think of as, you know, our muscles contracting, our us thinking, thoughts, you know, things like, or just being structurally sort of stable, um, that's all done by different proteins. And we have over 20,000 proteins. And each protein has a unique shape, or even multiple shapes. And depending on that unique shape, it does a unique function. And all, very often in disease, um, that you know, a single mutation, for example, can cause a change in that sort of structure, in that shape, or, or structure is more technically called, and that changes in function. And so there is, because of that, there is a sort of um, whole field called structural biology, but it used to be, you know, it's, it's still not easy, but it used to be, to me, still sort of, you know, for, same, for example, crystallography was really this technique, the structural technique, which sort of was the first one to, to go through. And then that technique, it's mind-boggling to me. It relies on the idea that these proteins, and again, each protein has a unique shape. They're sort of very rough at some ways, and, you know, um, come together in this crystalline lattice, mm-hmm. um, which is very periodic, and then you should x-rays at that lattice. Um, and so, unsurprisingly, a lot of proteins would not be able to do that. 
and so are sort of also it's an incredibly powerful technique and still is um, and sort of there is a lot of biology which it couldn't quite capture and so cryoelectric microscopy uses electrons to image sort of vitreous samples vitreous meaning they're frozen in their native uh, buffer environment or nowadays actually they can be part of a cell uh, and they're frozen so fast that it's faster than the water molecules have time to organize into crystalline lattice. Uh, uh, and then we can shoot electrons at them. Basically preventing the formation of ice. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. And then we shoot electrons at them and then use a lot of, you know, with, and at the end we get these very grayscale images um, of individual molecules or individual proteins. Um, and to step back a little bit, so understanding how single proteins work by how their shape looks like is very important. But proteins are social creatures, and so they actually work as part of protein complexes. And so multiple different proteins come together and hang out together. And then a lot of, you know, most biology and most disease is driven by rearrangement of those complexes. And so seeing how multiple proteins come together is sort of an incredibly exciting avenue. And so again, so we basically have proteins or protein complexes in, you know, put them in a microscope uh, in this, you know, glass-like ice. And then we shoot electrons at them. Uh, and then we get these grayscale images of individual particles. Uh, individual sort of small images of individual protein complexes. And then there's a lot of computation, and that's sort of so uh, one's a, one of the major advancements has been in the detectors for electrons, um, actually driven a lot by here at UCSF in collaboration with a lot of other uh, places, uh, which allowed us to really see sort of new features at much better resolutions than previously available in these grayscale images. But also another big thing has been in algorithms. And so another big development in the past, you know, five to six years, well, let's say 10 years, been really sort of with uh, the uh, incorporation of GPUs for processing, uh, neural networks, and all kinds of other methodologies really allows us to basically go from those growth scale images to three-dimensional atomic resolution shapes. Um, and then figure out why, you know, and then you, using this technology, you know, it's m multiple millions of dollars worth of equipment and, you know, then, you know, hours of processing and, you know, highly, you know, uh, uh, very powerful workstations. You get the three-dimensional shapes and then you can compare, say, uh, cancerous, you know, mutated protein versus a, what we call a wild type, which is like normal functioning protein. Um, or you can look at viral proteins and complex yeah. host proteins uh, and then try to understand how they come together. And that uh, then leads us to, you know, well, first better understanding of how things work, but also potentially gives us sort of a toehold uh, to try to uh, potentially come up with compounds or some other methods of drugging and rescuing that. Yeah. Yeah, amazing summary. Thank you. <laughs> Very long-winded. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it was it was good. So you you mentioned a lot of things there. So uh, you shoot electrons. Yeah. You get grayscale images yeah. that are two-dimensional images. Yes. And then you have to use computation and algorithms. I guess is a part of that mm -hmm. to build the two D images into three D models mm -hmm. of, of absolutely. So I I imagine between the two D and the three D. That's, there's a ton of work involved. and Could you give kind of like a, a, a layman's explanation of, of, of how that's done, like how sure. the 2D is then converted into 3D? Sure. So, I mean, I guess uh, so there's multiple things. So actually, so actually going the sort of mathematically, going from 2G to 3G has been fairly well figured out and uh, parameterized, and we can do that easily. Um, um, sort of projection, back projection, projection uh, computer, um, you know, tomography, for example, you know, in medicine has been doing this for a long time. And then there is sort of te different technical ways of doing it. But, you know, basically you sort of, it's not quite a shadow, but it's like an x-ray. So when you shoot, you know, electrons through our sample, uh, you, uh, you know, the images, I mean, the simplest way of thinking is, is shadows. Technically, that's not exactly correct. And then the idea is that, but even if we think of them as shadows, if you sort of rotate them, 
uh, and you can imagine collecting a large amount of you know sort of rotated images of shadows, and you can back project and get sort of a three dimensional image um, uh, uh, of the of your sample, I guess, of study. Where it actually is so, but again, mathematically, that has been well worked out. And we can go backwards and forwards. Uh, most of this is done, uh, uh, you know, in through using this other space called the Fourier space. Uh, but that's been figured out for a long time. Now, what's been much more difficult, <clears throat> and where a lot of algorithms have played a big role in, in improving what we get, is. Um, the sort of three-dimensional classification or two-dimensional, three-dimensional classification. And so because the thing, so the remarkable thing with our processing of overall of this imaging with electron microscopy is that as we image the sample, we destroy it. And so that fundamentally now limits the amount of electrons we can shoot our sample with, right? So think of it as, you know, think of it as you being in a dark space and you having different flashlights. And, you know, obviously if you have a really strong flashlight, you'll see very well. But basically we have to shoot with a very dim flashlight because if you shoot a very strong flashlight, you destroy yourself. And so once you have this, it puts, again, a very fundamental boundary on how many electrons you can shoot. Uh, then every electron really counts. And so... But then also it gives us very noisy images. So the signal to noise in our images is very low. That, you know, actually un by untrained eye, often you would not even probably recognize those as images of something, you know. And so uh, the problem is not going backwards from 2D to 3D. The problem is you have this, you know, you have hundreds of views of your sample in ice in two dimensions. And now what you need to figure out is that what were the axes of its rotation, basically, when it was frozen. If you have those three axes of rotation, the, then the angles where it was rotated in each of the axes, then mathematically you can go into 3D very straightforwardly. So figuring out those axes is very hard. Now, on top of that, um, each particle in the protein complex, they're not all exactly the same. And so they actually, proteins are quite dynamic. And the more interesting the protein is, the more dynamic I would argue it is. And so, uh, so often, you, when you're comparing them, you, know, you have to basically realize that there are multiple different proteins. And you have to also be able to group them together. And we have to group them together because of this limited signal to noise. Because when you basically, what you do is you, what's called average, but you can simply just think of adding them together. And when you add this particle images together, the uh, random noise will cancel out because sometimes it'll be positive, sometimes it'll be negative. So over different images, it'll cancel out. But what's not random will add. And so that's how you get better signal to noise through what's called averaging. But you have to align things so that you average them together in sort of, you know, they have to be in register with each other. Because if you add them without register, out of registers, then you just sort of smear everything out. And so that computational, so it's called alignment and classification. So those computationally are very, quite difficult to do um, appropriately in this very high noise context. And so a lot of, um, you know, algorithms, again, been focusing on using things like maximum likelihood frameworks and sort of dealing, working with probability distributions rather than truncating them arbitrarily, um, uh, which allows you to sort of estimate the error of your sort of, you know, your precision of this, uh, of alignment. That's been a lot of sort of the novel uh, uh, development um, in that. That's really cool. Uh, so if you have, the, so the electron, the electrons that are shot at the, the protein, are in two dimensions like they're the, the way that they're being received is in, in in two dimensions not from all directions no so, so the all directions would be a scanning electron microscope okay we're working with transmission electron microscope okay and so yeah so what we do is we shoot electrons at the top from the top of the microscope which yeah. you know could be um I don't know, 10 15 feet tall mm -hmm. the big ones and then you have your tiny, tiny sample, which is frozen, so it's still it's right. this liquid nitrogen temperature. Yeah. So electrons go through it. The electrons actually go through a bunch of lenses and get focused. That's why we work with electrons. Mm -hmm. It's easy to you, you know, use lenses with them. Yeah. 
And so, like, the overall setup is actually very similar to the light microscope. Okay. Uh, where you have a light source, you have a bunch of lenses, you have a sample, a bunch of lenses. Mm -hmm. And so it's an and then a detector or an eyepiece. And so it's the exact same idea here. We have a source, so now it's electrons, because electrons have a much, uh, remember, wave-particle duality, so electrons have a much, a very, very short wavelength mm -hmm. compared to photons. Yeah. Well, visible light photons. Um, and then... Um, and then, yeah, and so they go through your sample, and then there's, there's sort of uh, there's a phase shift, actually, between scattered and non-scattered electrons, oh. and then you detect that as a two-dimensional image right. um, uh, on your detector, which is yeah. a camera. Okay. Um, and then, and so, yeah. Yeah, so it makes sense why, knowing the axes, that the protein is in the, yeah. the, the vitreous... Uh, ice, I guess, yes, is, is exactly. uh, important to figuring out the... So it's, yeah, structure. exactly. I mean, think yeah. about, again, an intuitive sort of thing would be, you know, I know, hold up any object, right, mm -hmm. like a cup, and then imagine that you shine light, you know, at it, and imagine you have, like, a board in the back, right? And then as you, you'll get some image, and then as you rotate the cup, that image changes, yeah. right? And yeah. so, the, fundamentally, if you know at what angle the cup was when the image was taken, effectively, yeah. Yeah. then you can actually, and then if you have a bunch of those, you can actually fairly straightforwardly go into 3D shape of the cup. Yeah. But uh, figuring the angles is a hard part. Okay, nice. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that, that deep dive. So, like, zooming out a little bit, mm -hmm. using this technology to figure out protein structures or the way that two proteins might be interacting with yeah. each other, uh, you mentioned that it's it's helpful in, in a number of disciplines. In cancer research, for example, it could be helpful in drug discovery, mm -hmm. right? Could you talk a little bit about that and kind of your experience in that field? Sure, of course, yeah. So, um, right, so let's see. So, I mean, fundamentally, right, when you... So usually when something goes wrong, right, it means that either you have a protein which is supposed to be doing something, not doing something, or a protein which is not supposed to be doing something, doing something, or it's doing something in the wrong spot or at the wrong time. Right. That's kind of the way things go awry. And then uh, a funda going back to the shape idea and you know the structural biology is that a fundamental sort of dogma and you know uh, of of the field is that. There's, you know, for things like catalysis or binding, there has to be shape complementarity. So, you know, again, if you have a Phillips screw, you know, you want to have a Phillips screwdriver. Uh, you will be hard to put together, you know, put a Phillips screw in with a flat blade. Yeah. And so the idea here then is, you know, you have this protein. It has usually a specific, say, active site, as they're called. Yeah. That's sort of the site where you know, the magic happens. And for example, if that's, you know, often like proteins I work on uh, a lot are protein kinases, they're responsible for transferring a phosphate from ATP molecule to their substrates. And that changes, that's sort of involved in a lot of cellular decision-making. And so when cells, you know, when cancer happens, basically it means that the cells uh, kind of start listening to the rest of the cell society and kind of just do their own thing. And that usually means that they start, say, dividing uncontrollably, they migrate and things like that. So all those cell decisions, a lot of them are driven by this protein kinases, which basically just put some phosphate onto some specific group of proteins that then gets recognized by other proteins and ch changes completely the cell sort of program. So for that to happen, there has to be a specific binding event to this protein kinase. So kinase, again, is just a class of proteins which do this phosphorylation reactions. Uh, and then, so, for example, now, if you have a protein which is doing that in a, you know, when it's not supposed to, often, the, you know, again, the cancers are driven by this kinases being hyperactivated. What you need is you need to make a compound then that will go into that site on the protein, which does the magic, and will be perfect, perfect fit, you know, like a glove, so that it plugs it up and it can't do its chemistry, right? And so getting that compound, a lot of it still relies on trial and error with medicinal chemistry, but a lot of it, once especially you have a lead, relies 
on being able to visualize this sort of lead compounds bound to this protein of interest and seeing that, oh, like we can make it better in this way. We can, if we grow this group here or add a group here, we can make this new interaction which will make it bind even better, um, sort of rational you know, drug design. And so that's where structural biology uh, helps a lot. And, you know, so, for example, one of our recent work, which I've done uh, together with another QBI uh, uh, professor here at UCSF, Natalia Yura, was in working on um, uh, her two, her three receptor tyrosine kinases, uh, and, uh, you know, which is a specifically very potent oncogenic signaling complex where there is, you know, for example, HER2 positive breast cancers. And usually overexpression of HER2 is, you know, associated with very poor prognosis. And so, and then it's specifically these two proteins, HER2 and HER2, come together. And then that initiates a very strong sort of cell proliferative program. So cells just start dividing really strongly. Uh, but structurally, they've never been visualized together. And so we were the first ones using cryo-EM to actually visualize them together. And what's really cool is that we got the structure of the normal complex, uh, but we also got a structure of a mutant, cancer mutant complex. And what was really cool is that these proteins come together. When they're together, they're activated. So you want to sort of have a tight control on if they're together or not. And so part of this protein-protein interface in the wild type sort of normal complex was actually sort of weakened and we didn't actually even see it in our structure. But then the cancer mutant, single mutation, actually really stabilized the interface, sort of stapling the two proteins together, uh, really sort of pushing that complex formation. And now you had this much more higher, you know, sort of higher active sort of signaling through that complex leading to proliferation. And so again, just visualizing that, that was totally unexpected. The fact that evolutionary, you're, you know, through, and actually what was cool that is this element, there was this element which basically went from being disordered to being ordered upon uh, this cancer mutant. And so evolutionary basically the you know this interface has been sort of uh, 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 placed at this space where it's partially disordered, not as ordered as it could be, specifically so it's not too strong, so that these proteins don't interact very strongly together. And cancer completely overrides that, yeah. um, and then you know driving the, the signaling. And what was also cool in that work, we also got a structure with uh, actually a drug called Herceptin, which is an antibody which is approved and, you know, there are patients taking it. And it's never been visualized in its context of this sort of signaling complex. Um, and so we're able to see how it binds exactly in this structure. And also with that, hopefully, you know, I think now we are probably not going to do it, but, uh, you know, medicinal chemists and people working on this can use that structure to make the drug even better. Uh, having this atomic understanding of exactly where everything is. Yeah. Well, that's an excellent example, and and uh, it's a it's it's a curious case of uh, a cancer mutation leading not just to a hyperactive protein being hyperactive by itself, but leading to this enhanced yeah. uh, interaction with another protein to drive signaling. Which yes, is, which is really cool, and yeah, cool cool work. Um, question about that. So so her two and uh, her three are their. Um, cell surface, uh, cell membrane mm-hmm. proteins. So if you have a protein that normally lives in the cell membrane, when it comes to imaging mm-hmm. that protein or getting the structure of that protein, is that a barrier at all? Does that come into play? Yeah. yeah. So it's actually, right. So um, it certainly makes it much more difficult. And so you can break sort of proteins into there's sort of what's called cytoplasmic proteins. And then there um then there are membrane proteins, which have you know been experiencing sort of this explosion of structural biology because of cryo-EM. Uh, but then these proteins are actually really hard because what they have, they have a pretty large piece that is outside the cell. They have a small piece that's inside the membrane, and then they have a reasonably large piece that is inside the cell, cytoplasmic. And so that presents sort of the worst of all cases because the the first thing so for those who don't know the inside of the membrane is hydrophobic 
means you don't want there's no wear there. Yeah. And so when you work with soluble proteins, they're all hydrophilic. So you know you kind of have your normal buffers, and that's fine. When you have your membrane proteins, there's a whole set setup where you put them in this sort of you know either like a detergent little you know micelles they're called or different like nanodisc environments. Basically, you kind of hide them into this you know hydrophobic patches. Um, but here we have chunks which are you know soluble and chunks which are hydrophobic. So that's difficulty part number one. Uh, the second part is the fact that the outside is oxidizing and inside is reducing. And this has to do with cysteine residues and disulfide. Cysteine is an amino acid, uh, one of the 20 amino acids. And so what this means is so this, this cysteine can either be in a reduced or oxidized state, and when it's oxidized, it forms disulfide, which are often uh, key elements of extracellular proteins. And so they're basically these little staples, covalent staples across the protein structure, which hold it together. And so, uh, so here, so usually if you're working with a cytoplasmic protein, you actually add specific chemicals to make sure that there's no disulfides formed because it should be a reducing environment. When you're working with extracellular proteins, you actually don't add any of those chemicals because you're supposed to form those disulfide for a structure. But here we have half of the protein having to be reducing and the other half having to be oxidizing which makes it considerably more difficult. And so those are sort of the two challenges. That's why, you know, like look, people have been wanting to get the structure for a very long time. Um, and it just, you know, so it hasn't been done not for the lack of trying, it's just been very hard. And so yeah. these are sort of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a large heterogeneous floppy protein, mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of prevented the crystallography part of it. Yeah. But also having this sort of, being able to set up your conditions so that the outside is happy, the inside is happy, and the membrane is happy um, uh, certainly posed a big challenge. Yeah, sounds like it's uh, an extra layer of considerations uh, mm -hmm. that, that you have to kind of solve for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, a really cool example uh, for uh, applying cryo-EM and structural biology to cancer research. And So you, you've also done quite a bit in like virology, and, mm -hmm. and particularly with uh, the COVID um, virus. So, how did you get involved in that? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, I guess I think as a lot of people, especially here at UCL, got got involved in it. Is yeah. that you know, pandemic happened. Um, you know, you couldn't you couldn't really do your usual research, um, and also there's definitely was a feeling that you know it's a it's like a infringement on our scientific you know, saying where like mm -hmm. we should be able to help. You know, yeah. we, we should, you know, yeah. something kind of like proteins, virus, we kind of biology, we kind of know something, but we should be able to do something useful. Um, and so actually, you know, we made this large consortium of structural biologists uh, who are, you know, who worked uh, following up on the work driven by, you know, Nevin Krogan on identifying. So, you know, the virus, for those who don't know, I mean, it's, it's actually, you know, I never worked in virology before. But the more you know, I'm involved in it, the more I find them fascinating. And so one fascinating thing, you know, we have over 20,000 proteins. Viruses have very small number of proteins. So for example, COVID, depending coronavirus, depending on how you count it, say 26-ish proteins. So this, this virus comes in with 26 proteins and wreaks complete havoc on the world. Yeah. Right? And so it's, it's, you know, it's almost insulting that we can't figure it out because it's 26 <laughs> proteins, right? It's a very yeah. small number. And so, uh, and so what the, one of the ways it does it is by basically having its own proteins come into protein complexes, sort of, you know, interact with the human cell proteins. And that allows it to completely hijack human cells for its own sort of nefarious needs. Um, and so Nevin sort of, you know, as part of this large, you know, effort identified sort of the protein complexes that this 26 proteins in came together, you know, what human proteins did they bind to, you know. And so the next step was like, okay, what do they look like? How do they actually interact? Because, you know, again, if you want to start developing compounds, you need to know the interfaces where they interact, so you can make that compound that will fit that interface like a glove and break it apart. And so, and so to do that, we formed this, you know, structural biology consortium, uh, uh, QCRG structural biology consortium. And, uh, you know, which at some point had over 60 sort of volunteer-based effort across UCSF mm -hmm. um, on whoever wanted to just contribute. It was sort of an open call, which I think was really, really cool. 
Um, and then, um, yeah, and I had the privilege of sort of co-leading that effort uh, and trying to use what we do best, sort of the structural biology tools and knowledge we have to really bring molecular understanding into those protein complexes. And so, um, and we got a number of cool new structures. And I mean, and what's cool is once we started getting those structures, uh, it, you know, I, it became sort of, from a biophysical standpoint, quite exciting to me because um, viruses, you know, you can think of viruses as sort of a compression algorithm, right? Where viruses have to, you know, human cells have all the shrubbery to, you know, all these genes and circuits and things like that to be able to do all kinds of things, right? Uh, and then the viruses have to come in and sort of find very key points of those, you know, in, in, the, in, in the cell and sort of pressure points and press on them to rewire the cell to its own needs. So that's one level of compression. But another cool thing is that because it has a limited genome, you know, it has a limited number of proteins, but it has to do all these functions. And so what ends up doing, uh, happening is that the number of these proteins end up actually adopting multiple different shapes depending on what they interact with. And from a biophysical standpoint, this sort of plasticity, I think, is really exciting. It's sort of, again, going back to the, you know, Phillips screwdriver, here you have the screwdriver which, depending on what it, it's, it's actually not committed to being flat blade or Phillips. It's kind of in this, like, intermediate state. And when it sees a Phillips screw, it, whoop, it snaps into a Phillips shape, and when it has, sees a flat blade screw, it snaps into that shape. And that, to me, the fact that biology can do that is actually fundamentally really, really cool. And I think a lot of that happens in mammalian cells. Uh, and uh, better understanding of these sort of pleiotropic states I, I find very fascinating. So is that uh, less common in mammalian cells, this uh, kind of plasticity of protein I think so. I mean, my understanding is that it's true. Mm -hmm. And again, I mean, one could imagine, I mean, I think it's, so there's certainly a ton of proteins which are called intrinsically disordered, where basically, you know, if, you, if the protein is by itself, it doesn't adopt any shape. Um, and so there's quite a bit of those. And they certainly are enriched in sort of you know, transcription factors and regulatory proteins. Um, there's definitely a lot of proteins, like I think I would argue that a lot of protein kinases are in this sort of metastable states where they're not totally intrinsically disordered, but a lot of them are not totally folded either. Um, and then, but, but I think viruses, again, are under unique pressure to really get, you know, the most function out of each protein that they have. And so I think, uh, you know, I would imagine mammalian cells, you know, human cells are not under such an incredible pressure. You know, we have so much junk DNA, um, or, well, uh, unannotated DNA already, you know, that realistically, you know, if you need a new function, just get a new protein. You know, duplicate a protein right. you have, you know, tinker with it. Like, yep. no, no big deal, right? Yep. Where if a virus, you know, you kind of got to keep the genome size pre, you know, in check. And, you know, and if it becomes longer, you need to get better proofreading and all this kind of stuff. And so they're really, I think the pressures are much stronger. And so, you, you know, they're much, so I think there's definitely more of these sort of shapeshifter proteins in viruses than yep. there's um, in Cool. So, so as part of this larger consortium, you got involved mm -hmm. in, in, in COVID research. And uh, so... Yeah, I saw one thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, you worked on, uh, recently published, on something called receptor traps. Uh huh. Uh, related to the ACE2 yeah. uh, receptor, yeah, yeah. Of, uh, uh, which is a COVID yeah. uh, binding, I guess, molecule. That's the molecule on uh, mammalian cells that mm -hmm. COVID the yeah. virus is, is binding to. What are receptor traps? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, um, Cool. So this is actually a work which was, you know, really driven by um, Anum Glasgow and Tanya Cortemi's lab, and uh, Sumya uh, Gavinderamesh and Jim Wells' lab. And as part of a consortium, we did a lot of structural biology on that. And so the idea of the receptor traps is that you, um, so the virus, you know, spike protein on the virus interacts with H2s, and that's how it interacts with human cells and gets internalized. And so a lot of antibodies, for example, would try to break that apart. You know, basically, again, you antibody would bind at the interface at the site where the spike protein would try to interact with H2 and 
you know, prevent that binding, therefore the virus would not be able to enter the human cells. Mm -hmm. And so the idea here is that can you make this human ACE2 protein, can you actually mutate it so that it would so, so that it would bind to the coronavirus spike protein tighter. So if it binds better to the coronavirus spike protein, then it would theoretically outcompete the H2 that is on human cells, and therefore all the, you know, the virus would come in, bind all this, you know, all the, um, uh, all this H2 receptor traps, and then would not basically be able to interact with the human cell endogenous as H2, the H2 that is on the cell surface and normal cells. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, Cortemi and Wells Lab, they basically did a combination of uh, computational uh, re sort of re engineering of the interface uh, using Rosetta, a software called Rosetta. And then they also use sort of actual library panning uh, to get better affinity uh, through sort of experimentally to mutate the interfaces and get better binders. And then they came up with a couple of these binders of these receptor traps where there were literally like four mutations, which led to way better binding to spike protein. And actually in, um, in culture, you could see that it would neutralize the virus and things like that. And the question was, you know, how does it work in molecular details? And then also sort of on a technical level was, was our computational modeling similar to the actual experimental structure. And so we got the structures of the receptor traps um, with the spike protein. And then, uh, uh, and then, yeah, we saw how, you know, it was really cool, how like a tiny, tiny shift of, you know, uh, one to two Armstrongs of the interface allowed sort of much better repacking of the interface, leading to a much better binder. And so, yeah, I mean, something that is, you know, such a tiny, tiny, tiny difference leading to such a big effect. So that was our work. Yeah, that's, uh, that's cool. And one, so but one, yeah. to, just to add, one cool thing about the receptor traps is with antibodies, you know, they're sort of an orthogonal system. So if you have an antibody, you're like this, you know, therapeutic antibodies. When they come in and they bind, they, you know, theoretically that interface, uh, some of them do bind in a similar interface as the H2, but otherwise they are sort of that interface might not be evolutionarily constrained to stay the same. But what's cool with the receptor traps is because it's basically the same exact thing as recognizing the human normal H2, the virus can't just willy-nilly mutate the interface away because then it won't be able to come into the cells. And so what was really cool about this work was that the receptor traps, which were sort of designed for the original Washington variant, a Wuhan variant of the, of the spike protein, worked actually better on Delta and Omicron than it worked on the original one because the Delta and Omicron actually spike proteins bound to the human ACE2 better and so it bound to the receptor traps better. Wow, okay. And so theoretically it shouldn't be able to mutate away the interface yeah. uh, like it would, uh, like it has done with uh, most of the antibody. Yeah. Is the ACE2 receptor the only uh, protein that the spike protein binds to in order to get in the cell? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, um, so that's one way to develop yeah, resistance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there definitely been reports of other proteins and entry points, but this definitely seems to be the major one. Okay. Um, you know, the other ones certainly much less well understood. This is, this is, you know, even in cell culture, you sort of, in cells which don't have H2, you know, you need you get much better, you know, viral infections in sort of laboratory when you you have to put ACE2 into the cells for that. And so I would say that definitely is a major, but not the only, because there yeah. definitely been reports about the proteins also yeah. involved. Yeah, I mean that's that's really cool. So that is a potential therapeutic strategy. Uh, could yeah. be developed theoretically. Theoretically, yeah. I mean I think a lot of it. I mean again, it's conceptually would certainly would work. I mean mm -hmm. now the question is, you know, ACE2 is an enzyme, so with having a ton of it floating around right. be bad as in terms of side effects, you know, that's the question, you know, how much. So, you know, this would be a biologic. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, how much of, um, uh, you know, once you have biologics, just producing a lot of them is hard because, yeah. you know, proteins are yeah. much harder to make and yeah. often than, you know, small And models. storing them. Exactly, it's exactly. And so I think, company, yeah. you know, I think conceptually 100%. Yeah. In terms of, you know, it, it would take a, you know, it would take a lot of effort to bring it to, to market. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really, I mean, really cool research, though. And 
So, you know, you, you've talked about a couple of things. So you've done, as I said at the beginning, some really different, uh, you've been involved in some really different areas of research. And so how did you get into this? How did you get interested in, in, in either structural biology or science or research in general? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I know. I mean, it's a good, so, you know, some of it, you know, fundamentally, I've always been interested in how the world works. So I think that's sort of a fundamental trait that, you know, especially like, you know, kids should be on a lookout for. It's like, you know, do you do you want to understand how the world works or do you want to make new stuff? Or, you know, or do you not care about either of yeah. those things? <laughs> right. And so I always was curious about how things work. And, uh, you know, how I said on biology specifically, uh, you know, I... Uh, that is, you know, I actually probably been driven by a couple of really good teachers I had, uh, which really got me fired up about this. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, you know, you know, but uh, I could, I could imagine. Yeah, I don't know. At this point, it's hard for me to imagine being, you know, as excited about mm-hmm. uh, something else. Uh, so I probably would say that uh, sort of, you know, converted the general curiosity into biology specific curiosity. And then, you know, I went to a small liberal arts college. We didn't even have, like, biochemistry as a major. It was mm-hmm. biology. So I ended up doing biology major and um, chemistry minor. I also did a philosophy major. But for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, does that come into play in your everyday work? I mean, actually, I think it does. Yeah. Uh, hugely so. Um, uh, right. I mean, I think philosophy is actually, I think everybody should do some philosophy. I mean, I think it's super useful because... It really um, flushes out sort of what's, what are premises, what are knowns, and like in terms of rigorous thinking about systems, I think it's really, really good. Uh, but anyway, so I was in like this liberal arts college, and then uh, I wanted to do research. Um, and, uh, and then at that point, I guess the question was like, at what level of understanding, where did I call it quits, right? Mm-hmm. Where you know, quite, you know, memorizing. I remember going to cell biology and sort of feeling like I had to memorize, you know, a bunch of circles and rectangles, weird names and how, where's the arrows point? And I found that not satisfactory enough. So, I, you know, figuring out where, how these circles and, and rectangles actually look like and how that worked, I felt that was sort of that, once I saw the structures, I sort of felt like I understood and I was happy. And going beyond that into, you know, uh, I don't know, like, uh, uh, you know, quantum modeling of active sites was probably a little bit too much for me of mm-hmm. detail. And so that's yeah. where, you know, and so I actually, I remember, you know, I think walking into the office of, you know, small college, and so it's, you can do these things. I walk into, like, the, the department chair office and said that, hey, I'm, I think, a sophomore. I would like to do some research, and I'm kind of interested in, you know, Cell biology, biochemistry. I think that's where I was at. And then there was a new um, uh, uh, faculty there, Miriam Sigur Toten. She was like, oh, go talk to her. She was looking for students. And so I talked to her, and, um, you know, she seemed to, you know, she, she liked me enough to let me work in her lab. And then as I was working in her lab, that was more on the sort of cell biology uh, aspects. And through that year of work, became clear that, again, I kind of always wanted to understand the mechanism and the sort of how did it look like, how did it actually work. And so she recognized it, and so she connected me uh, with a, a structural biology uh, a lab, Carla Mata's lab at North Carolina State University. Uh, and so I went there and did some crystallography as an undergrad. Um, um, and that, was, uh, that sort of was my first experience with structural biology, and I really liked that. And so I continued sort of going between the two labs and working on these two, you know, uh, on those projects. And I guess when I was applying for grad schools, you know, I really became fascinated with the idea of protein folding. And so I guess for those who are not familiar with this, you know, we've been talking about proteins having specific shapes. So what's the cool part about it, maybe the coolest part about it, is the fact that these proteins are made as this shapeless polypeptides, they're called, sort of strings. Yeah. And they sort of self-organize in these specific shapes. And so nobody chisels them out. 
they fold that process called folding, and they adopt a specific shape. And so that was to me um, uh, super super cool understanding how that happens. And so with that idea, I came and I joined David Eger's lab here at UCSF, working on actually trying to understand how. So so the proteins adopt their specific shapes, and then the process is again pro, pro process called folding, and then sometimes they don't quite reach their specific shapes, and so cells have cells have made this whole slew of other proteins and circuits to to help other proteins fold, and these proteins are called chaperones. And so what I studied in David's lab was how uh, these molecular chaperones actually help other proteins fold. And the proteins, they, um, well, not only help them fold, but what turns out is that there is actually a number of these protein chaperones and this called substrate protein or client proteins for these chaperones, which seem to interact long post-initial folding, sort of really starting to question the idea. You know, usually canonically chaperones would be thought of as you it's you, you need the chaperones during this initial process of folding or if you end up misfolded somehow. But it turns out that there's a ton of very important proteins, including protein kinases, which are studying now, which actually sort of always are dependent on chaperones. And so they can access this strange metastable partially unfolded states um, uh, all throughout their lifetime. And so how that sort of fits evolutionary? You know, why would you want to have this sort of proteins which are tasked with life or death decisions uh, in this metastable states? To me is sort of the, the uh, still, the, you know, the most exciting uh, question. And so I guess that's kind of, yeah, so I went through, you know, so by teachers pushed me you know, towards biology, I think, and then the experience and I guess just you know, the mindset, I ended up sort of going towards more mechanism, structural biology, and then you know, probably, again, the most, like this, the connection of protein folding to function, the resulting function, uh, to me is uh, you know, incredibly exciting. That's why, again, I think this viral proteins, which can adopt multiple shapes, is really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why, again, I think protein kinases are really cool because a lot of them are actually quite pliable, so they don't quite have as committed of this sort of shape as they should. And so, whatever you know, how evolutionary tuned they are to be in this middle state and metastable yeah. states, I think is very interesting. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's amazing that. Uh, Sometimes all it takes is a teacher or two that's yeah. excited about something yeah. to get you excited about something. I, I have kind of a similar story. I mean, uh, in college, I wasn't particularly sure which direction I wanted to go in. And then um, I was pre-med, and then I was taking biochemistry as part of that. And uh, this wasn't until senior year of college. And I had a professor who was just super excited uh-huh. about biochemistry, and he, he also was doing research. And so I was, you know, I was like, oh, let me go talk to this guy, see what he's so excited about. And then he got me excited, and then, you know, here I am. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. It's, it's awesome that, that, you know, sometimes it's just a, it just takes a teacher or two that's Absolutely. excited to, to kind of nudge you in a direction, and then, and then you find what you're passionate about. Uh, so outside of research, what are your passions? I word on the street is that uh, there might be a bit of an artist. <laughs> uh, artist is generous again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say you know, tinker maybe. Um, have uh, many different... So yeah, tinker is probably the most like appropriate um, thing. So I like... Uh, I certainly like making stuff. Um, let's let's start with that. And so, so, so you you're doing kind of both, right? Yeah, now, right? So yeah, exactly, exactly. Figuring stuff out and you're making yes, new exactly. stuff. Okay. Because I feel yeah. like you know, uh, I would go crazy if I wouldn't make stuff. Because I think you know, often in science, you know, there's just so much failure. Shit, like ninety nine percent of the time, stuff just doesn't work. Yeah. Right. And so things take forever to materialize. And so it's good to go and do something with your hands you know, intense sort of, intense work for three, four hours, and then you have some physical thing manifest itself in front of you, which you may. Mm -hmm. And so that feeling is really good. Um, And so, so 
was yeah so I actually one of my big passions is cars actually mm. so I you know actually a, a buddy of mine from grad school and I we built a rally car together wow. during grad school and we raced a couple times and we still have the car we haven't raced in a little while been a little busy and we need to fix a bunch of stuff up but yeah. I definitely started a lot of tinkering mm-hmm. with the, you know with the cars and then um, and then also you know in addition to that you know, because of actually a lot of the work on the car, we've had to build a rally car, learn how to weld. And that's also like a really cool, you know, I feel like mm-hmm. once you can make stuff out of metal, it's unclear why you would make it out of anything else <laughs> uh, to me. Uh, because, you know, it's just, especially any metal, you know, yeah. aluminum, you know, steel, stainless, titanium. Nice. Uh, and so, and so with that, you know, I've been contributing to a number of art projects. Uh, and also um, sort of tink- you know tinkered with electronics and so actually I helped contribute to a number of so yeah so I helped contribute to this thing um, um, we built with uh, a friend of mine uh, a, a gyroscope uh, where basically it's like three dimensional um, gimbal I guess where you know a person can stand inside and then rotate in three axes and so uh, we built that together with him a while back now and um, and then again another thing is I helped make lights for uh, what's called an art car so it's this thing where like a cars are converted to be made like look something else and not like cars okay. and so I helped build one and wow. uh, um, we put like 10,000 LED lights wow. on it which yeah it's like a lot of wiring and soldering okay. uh, because you know you have to um, it's like micro welding. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's remarkable how much power you need to supply for, you know, once you, you know, each LED doesn't draw that much, but once you have 10,000 of them, you yeah. need a lot of juice. Yeah, yeah. And so we, you know, we, um, uh, another friend of mine and I, we actually contribute to that. And so, you know, kind of tinker was all, I think tinker is probably the most accurate, sure, you know, sure. kind of make stuff, whatever yeah. it is. I've uh, been, you know, trying to get into more like fiber optic-y type stuff now, mm-hmm. which I think is like a really cool sort of, um, it allows, you know, uh, the problem with LEDs is that they're very sort of, they, you know, you need to diffuse them well, so mm-hmm. they mix them well, so yeah. that they look good. And so I think it's uh, fiber optic, you know, is a really cool medium where you can make it sort of a very sort of continuous, you know, diff- well diffused light. Um, and so it's something I've been playing around right now. So yeah, Tinker. Yeah, it's a cool way to put it because you kind of dip your toes in a lot of different yeah pools and you know whatever you enjoy. And so something interesting uh, that I'm noticing is that so in your tinkering, you're enjoying making physical things. Yeah, right? something that you you create, you touch, right? Yeah. Something that's tactile. And then in your research, actually, the you know structural biology, you're. You're also looking at things yeah. that are actually there, right? You might not be able to see it with the naked eye, yeah. right? But the images that are created with the cryo uh, EM, yeah, it is actually an image of something that is actually there, exactly, right? It's not something that is being fabricated, like it made made up. Yeah, so that, that's kind of cool. So you so you have this 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 passion for. Pursuing real things. Real things. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Yeah, I remember yeah. actually, yeah, the first time I saw like an AM image, like mm-hmm. it blew my mind because like, you know, for, again, I've done a bunch of crystallography in undergrad and it's, you know, you get these diffraction spots and you go, this convoluted way of going from diffraction spots to three-dimensional structures. And then if you do NMR, you get these peaks and it's an even more convoluted way of going between those two structures. But then the first time you take an EM image, you're like, oh, that's my protein. Oh, like that little thing, nice. that's yeah. how it looks. It has like three blobs and a little things sticking out. <laughs> and that's how it floats out around the cell. And it's like, yeah. and then you just see a bunch of them hanging out. So yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, I totally agree. I guess there's some fundamental draw towards, mm-hmm. you know, things like, tech, you know, like that. Yeah. I often think that what's really cool, though, is that biology, you know, we often compare proteins and things, and even like this Phillips and Flatblade example, right? Yeah. We sort of compare them to our man-made machines. Mm-hmm. But again, I think biology is so much cooler in some ways because, again, I think some of these proteins 
A, uh, much more akin to computers and machines, I would mm-hmm. say, creating kinases are like that. And what's really also cool is that they are much less discreet than, they're much more analog. Yeah. And I think there's actually even computationally, you know, the people, there have been, you know, discussions and ideas of, non-digital computers of course quantum computers are an excellent yeah. example of now of actually non-digital you know computers and so I think it's it's cool that you know we think of computation and computers in a particular way and our like paradigm is sort of limited by the machines we made you know where like here's a wrench this is how it looks like and it's static but in this molecular world of biology you know I think proteins are doing something that we don't quite you know often have a good analogy for because I think often they're much more pliable and they sort of adopt the shapes which you need at the, you know, at the right time, in the right spot. And what's sort of a macroscopic analogy for that? I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think we make as humans machines like that. Mm-hmm. And our computers, again, are a combination of discrete states. Now we're just starting to get into, again, I mean, our computers actually started being Originally, we made analog computers, and then we went to this, you know, von Neumann architecture of discrete states, and now, you know, and then, well, I guess the von Neumann architecture and discrete states are two different things. But the point is that I think, you know, uh, there is the analogies are very interesting because I think biology is fundamentally doing cooler things than we can draw analogies to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, any uh, any hopes for a biological computer? Uh Sure, at some point. I mean, I think so. I mean, I think we just need to understand better how they do what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a general, you know, process, right? Like at first, like I feel like biology is getting to the point where we're starting to understand things enough to start making new things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I still think we don't understand a lot. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we first need to learn considerably more uh, of how things are done. And then at some point we can, sure, we'll probably be able to manipulate <laughs> and do things. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, how, at what point we'll be able to incorporate them into computers? Oh, I, I don't know. That's a good question. But mm-hmm. again, there's all kinds of exciting computing. You know, there are optical computers, computing now happening, which mm-hmm. is fundamentally different from yeah. sort of transistor-based stuff. So um, I wouldn't, you know, maybe in our lifetime. Yeah. Are really cool stuff and you know a lot of the stuff that you know all the research that you do you know really exciting and if there uh, are some young scientists out there I mean you're young too I'm, I'm relatively young as well but <laughs> let's say younger than us yeah. you know that want to do what you do uh, what piece of advice would, might you give them boy uh, let's see I mean So, you know, probably one thing I would say is I've certainly seen sometimes cases, and personally too, where, you know, don't be shy, I guess I would Mm -hmm. say. You know, where I feel like often, especially really, you know, people who are really, really good are really, really shy. Um, And, you know, often they can sort of, uh, you know, themselves, you know, through inner insecurities, you know, limit their own growth. Um, And so I feel like, you know, um, you don't want to be in that position. So, you know, you better over, you know, correct there than under, you know, to some extent. And, you know, you have to kind of be, and also don't be afraid of failure, I would say. Because again, I mean, I think, you know, you should sort of treat this, you know, your personal growth as sort of a I know you could imagine treating it as dialing the air fuel mixture in a car engine, right? Where you kind of go, you know, up, and then once you overshoot, you kind of come down, and you undershoot, you come back up. Yeah. And so you kind of, you know, don't be afraid of going too far out and then overshooting, and then you know, but then you also be able to recognize that you did that and come back. Yeah. Uh, and you know, probably build a good community. You know, mm-hmm. develop. You know, I think everything, hands down, everything that, you know, I've I've gotten to the place where I am due to amazing people who helped me along. Even, you know, starting, I mean, of course, starting with my parents, you know, and the family, but also, um, you know, the teachers along the way, you know, friends and, you know, the yeah. mentors all throughout yeah, yeah. life. And so I feel like, you know, uh, 
really treasure, you know, the deep relationships, you know, mm-hmm. be, try to develop deep relationships with people uh, and uh, maintain them and treasure them. And because, you know, ultimately most of our business is, you know, human-based in the end. And yeah. I think, you know, again, I would be nowhere without, if I wouldn't meet, um, you know, amazing people who are willing to believe in me and, yeah. you know, give me a deal extra push. Um, I know if that's helpful or not, but that's, I guess, what no, <laughs> uh, no, comes to mind. I absolutely think it's helpful. So, I mean, you know, you, you heard it here. Uh, Clem says, don't be shy. <laughs> don't be afraid of failure, which maybe is another version of yeah. don't be shy. Yeah. And uh, develop a strong community, which could also be an extension of don't be shy. Go talk to people and, yeah. you know, like build these relationships. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much sure. for a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, that's all. Termination of current scientist, the human episode. Stay breezy.